Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Today I'm back talking about the second book in the Kristen Lofgren's Daughter series, The Wife. But before I begin, and before I give a recap of the last book, The Wreath, I want to read a section from the Sigrid Unset biography that I've been reading by A.H. Winsnes. It's a beautiful summation of the transition from the first book in the series to the next two and what to expect as you read. So A.H. Winsnes says, The mistress of Hussabee and the cross do not possess the dramatic tension of the garland, nor its sense of life throbbing with youth and love and lyricism, but they are no less great as literature. In these two parts, the epic power in Sigrid Unset's art is unfolded in marvelous wealth and vast amplitude, perhaps to an even higher degree than in the story of Olav Odinson. Everything, great and small, finds a place. The whole of life, the everyday world, political events, love, marriage, household duties, childbed and deathbed, nothing is common. Everything is seen in its cosmic relationship. Nature and landscape appear in a changeful light, following the rhythmic movements of the seasons. Human life is seen in its mutable phases, the long, weary development in every man and woman before they learn to love someone or something higher than themselves. All of them journey through life to the same common goal, the judgment seat, where every human being shall be judged as he is and not as he appears in the eyes of others. All human life is seen in an eternal perspective in relation to the divine order, the one absolute perfection, which is the source of all truth, beauty, and wisdom. Now, the mistress of Hussabee and the garland that are mentioned in that quote are the wife and the wreath. It is just a different way that it was translated. And this biography was written in the 1950s, and that's how the titles were referenced at the time. But I just think that's a beautiful summation, as I said before, of how these last two books unfold. In the second book of the series, The Wife, it is the story of Kristen and Erlen, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I was pronouncing it incorrectly in the first episode, have just gotten married and they are moving to his estate in northern Norway, Hussabi. The book follows their story, the bulk of their first decade of marriage. I will not reveal too much because a lot happens in this book, even from the quote that I just read from the biography. It may not seem that there's the lyricism and the love story, but this is very much about their life and everyday life of, of Kristen and Erlen and all the characters around them. And you get that rich picture of what life in the Middle Ages would have been like. And a lot happens in this story. A lot. I just am bursting to share, but I'm going to wait for some of it for the recap. I can share some of it. I'm trying to keep it as spoiler-free as I can for those who haven't read it. 
But like I said, a lot happens and it really shapes Kristen and Erlen's relationship and the lives of everyone around them. And it even extends into the country of Norway. That's all I'm going to say on that. I know that's not much of a summary, but just know that this book is not dull in any way. It is teeming with life and betrayal and deception and repentance and, oh, bitterness and just the minutia of human existence and just all the things that make up human nature. And it is beautifully written. Before I go any further, I want to take a little bit of time to introduce some new characters that are in this book. So I'm going to quote Wisnes again. The bulk of this story is Kristen and Erlen's, but there are also a rich array of secondary characters. And I want to quote Winsnes again, talking about the strength of Sigrid Unset in creating these characters. The quote is, Kristen remains the central figure, but all the other characters are fully illumined. They live their own lives, each one entangled in the complexities of his own mind, each one predisposed in his own fashion, each one with his own history. That's important because along with all the other characters that were in the other books, there are a few that either have a bigger part in this book or they're first introduced. So some of the characters that are going to be new or expanded in this book are Erlen's children by Aline, his first mistress, Orm and Margaret. I don't want to say too much about them but there is some tension between Kristen and Erlen's reception of his first children compared to the children that they have together. So it's important just briefly to mention them for that reason. Also, there is Ulf Halderson, who is a servant of Erlen's, and he will play a bigger role as the story unfolds. I don't want to say too much about it, but he's the overseer of Erlen's land, and he becomes Kristen's friend. He's pretty cocky and prideful. He's the illegitimate son of one of Erlen's relatives, and he's uh, quite a bit of a ladies' man, but he's very respectful of Kristen and Erlen. He loves them and respects them both, and he becomes a friend of Kristen's. That's just important to note for later. Put it away in your pocket for later. Ramborg, Kristen's sister, has a much bigger part, which I have to remain mum on until I do a recap next week. But she is the only other surviving child of Lovren's and Ronfred. And she's going to have a bigger place in the overall story as it continues. Then there is Gunnolf. He is a priest and Erlen's devoted brother. He is extremely well-educated and intelligent. He has a very promising career in the church, if he desires it, coming his way. He is a godly and humble man who desires to become a missionary and monk. He becomes a confidant and friend to Kristen, and he has a very important role to play in her life, as I'll share in just a moment. All right, before I get into the meat of the story, I want to do a little bit of a recap 
with some of the things I could not share in the last episode. So just be warned, there's some spoilers coming up. So where did the wreath leave us? Well, at the very end of the last book, we got Ronfrid's confession to Lovren's that she had had a sexual relationship with another man before they were married. Reading it and rereading it, it seems as if it was not consensual, that it may have been rape. But Ronfrid doesn't see it that way. She thinks that it is her fault. She has carried around this burden and this weight her whole married life to Lovren's until the night of Kristen's wedding when she finally confesses to him. And it is a moment that's very fraught because Lovren's has just taken his daughter to the bridal room and he is confessing to Ronfred that he doesn't think that Kristen is pure coming to her marriage. He thinks from the look that Kristen gave Erlen that they had had already engaged in a relationship together. So as he's saying this to Ronfred, this is when her confession comes out. So Lovren's world is just shattered completely. But then you have Ronfred, who has held on to the secret for decades, and she has come to love her husband deeply, and she has felt such shame throughout all of this. And that's where we are left at the end of the last book. Now, it's going to pick up within this book, and it's going to come. I'm just going to go ahead and tell this to give people relief. It's going to come full circle in the way in which Ronfred and Lovren's relationship, which I'll discuss in just a minute, the way in which it comes together at the end is beautiful and so much redemption and reconciliation for both of them. So that's where we've left Lovren's and Ronfred. With Lovren's whole world shattered, his good name and his reputation he knows have been mocked by his own daughter. He has been completely betrayed by her. And he has just had his wife confess the secret that she has held from him since they were married. We've got Ronfred, who's been steeped in this guilt, who sees her daughter engaging in the same thing that happened to her and having to confess that to her husband. So the ending is, is so fraught. And Kristen, who went to her wedding ceremony pregnant, and with the guilt of Aline's death on her. So I was not able to talk about that in the last episode, but Erlen's first mistress, Aline, commits suicide in the first book. She's alone with Kristen. She tries to poison Kristen. Erlen comes in, tries to stop it. Kristen eggs him on of, you've got to choose one of us. We can't have both of us. He tries to force Aline to drink the poison. Aline gets a knife out. She stabs Erlen, and then she ends up stabbing herself. But Kristen had goaded her on to all of it. The part that Erlen and Kristen had in Aline's death is covered up by saying that Aline attacked Erlen on their way back to his estate and that she ended up accidentally killing herself. So Kristen, like I said, is at the altar with blood guilt on her, knowing she's pregnant, only Fru Asild knows about this. And she is 
frightened and she feels the weight of the guilt on her. And in the midst of all of that, she makes a vow at the altar to St. Olaf, which is very important because it will feature in at the beginning of the wife. So I'm going to read her vow to St. Olaf from the book, The Wreath, so that when I talk about it in a little bit again, you'll understand the weight of her vow as well. So this is from when Kristen is at the altar at her on her wedding day. She is hearing the screams and cries of her sin and what they did to Aline. And this is her prayer. Holy King Olaf, I call to you. Among all those in heaven, I beg you for help. For I know that you loved God's righteousness above all else. I beseech you to protect the innocent one who is in my womb. Turn God's anger away from the innocent. Turn it toward me. Amen. In the precious name of the Lord. And then she goes on to have Aline's voice mocking her of her children were innocent. How could you have done this to them? And here comes Kristen's vow. Holy Olaf, I beg for mercy nevertheless. I beg for compassion for my son. Take him under your protection. Then I will carry him to your church in my bare feet. I will bring my golden crown to you and place it on your altar, if you will help me. Amen. So that's Kristen's vow. She's going to take her crown to the altar of St. Olaf, the patron saint of Norway, if God will spare her son. Meanwhile, Erlen is completely clueless that Kristen is pregnant. Her family doesn't know. As I mentioned before, only Kristen and Fru Asild know. So Erlen is coming to his wedding day ecstatic He gets to see Kristen in her crown, and he has no concept, no thought of everything that has come before and how Kristen is feeling. Also, Brother Edvin has died before all of this happened, so Kristen is without the spiritual father figure anymore. And Simone, I think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce it. It's not pronounced Simon like I was saying in the last episode, has married a very wealthy widow and seemingly moved on from Kristen. So that's where we're left off in the wreath. And where we pick up in the wife is that Kristen is brought to Husseby. It is Erlen's grand estate. It is much grander than the farm where Kristen grew up, much more than I realized when I first read it. But it is in complete disrepair from Erlen and Aline's mismanagement. The servants are slothful, The property isn't managed. The house is in disarray. There's lice in the beds. There's food on the floor. The walls are not clean. It is just a place of complete disorder and chaos, which is completely different from what Kristen is used to and where she's come from. When Kristen comes to the estate, immediately, now bear in mind she is a new bride. This is the few days after she comes to Husseby. She's pregnant in the early stages of pregnancy, she immediately goes to work. She is extremely industrious and hardworking, and she starts to clean Husseby and put it into order. So I'm going to read a quick quote from that section of when she comes there and how she is putting this house into order, because hopefully this will put Kristen in a little bit of a better light 
and show and highlight her good qualities because she does have good qualities before we get into some of her pettiness and her flaws. So it says, Then Kristen Lovren's daughter set about organizing and managing her household. She was up before dawn each morning, even though Erlen protested and pretended that he would keep her in bed by force. No one expected a newly married woman to be running from one building to another long before the light of day. When she saw into what a sorry state everything had fallen and how much she would have to tend to, then the thought shot through her mind, hard and clear. If she had committed a sin to come to this place, so be it. But it was also a sin to make use of God's gift, as was done here. So in Kristen's hand, Erlen's estate is completely turned around. She makes it a thriving place of prosperity. And in that, she is creating this place of legacy for what will be very many sons that they have together. All of that, I'm giving a very broad overview of where we're picking up in this story, who the characters are, where we're at in Kristen's life. But with all the wealth of this story, I just want to concentrate on a few things for this episode. I want to bring a few things out that are just very strong points and themes in the book. Now, in no way does this cover the whole of the wife. There is so much to the story, to the life of Kristen, that I can't even begin to cover it all in this episode as much as I would like to. It would take episodes upon episodes to go through this rich series. So I'm going to, unfortunately, because of time constraints, I'm going to be forced to just do a condensed view of this book and also because I I don't want to do too many spoilers. But when I think of this book, I have been in my mind breaking it down into three big sections, themes. One is the fruit of sin, which is the name of the first section of the wife. The other is repentance and forgiveness. And then lastly, the little foxes, which I will explain in a moment. I'm going to start off with the fruit of sin. And that is, of course, everything that's come before between Erlen and Kristen and where they are at as the story picks up. Kristen and Erlen finally have what they want in the wife. They got married at the end of the wreath. They got the wedding that Erlen wanted. But they've left a trail of betrayal, deception, and death in their wake. Erlen's oldest children are now without a mother. Kristen is a little over three months pregnant, as I've mentioned, when she arrives as a new bride at Hussabee. Soon everyone will know how she and Erlen deceived her father and the church. They've just had a second wedding celebration when they come to the house and priests come and bless the house and bless them. So they're being deceptive in that as well. Kristen has the weight, as I've mentioned, of Aline's death and the reminder of her and the reminder of what they did when she comes to the home where Aline lived with Erlen. This is the home that they had together and is the home that Kristen is having to come into. Soon, Aline and Erlen's children will have to come and live with them, and Kristen will have to be a mother to these two children that she was responsible in leaving them motherless. With all of this weight and shame and guilt, but also it's a very real thing that she's living with, these are the repercussions of the decisions and the actions 
that Erlen and Kristen made. They had no thought for anyone else when they were engaging in their illicit relationship. But it's all coming out now, and they're having to face everything that they did in secret. It's all about to come to light. And because of this, Kristen is terrified because of superstition that her child will be marred because of her sin and that she and the child are going to die in childbirth. Kristen is just overcome with this sense of she is going to have to pay for what she did. Now, that is Kristen's view. That's never the view I believe that we get when we come to the repentance and forgiveness I'm going to come to in a moment. It is also a reality that they are, as I mentioned before, living with the fruit of what they did. That's something that can't change easily. There can be moments of beautiful redemption, and, and that is, it's amazing, and it's coming. But there are also things that they are going to have to reconcile with because of the decisions that they made. Kristen cannot bring back Aline. She cannot bring back the mother of Orm and Margaret. She can absolutely be a mother to them, but that has been lost and that cannot be brought back. She can't take back how she's deceived her father and how she's deceived the church. And she can't stop this child from growing and thriving and being born. But with all of that said, because this is something that we would all face in life, we all have these moments. This is when repentance and forgiveness and grace are able to enter the story so beautifully. So in the wreath, as I mentioned earlier, Kristen loses her spiritual father, Brother Edvin. But she gains one in her brother-in-law, Gunolf, in the wife. And it's interesting as I've been going back and preparing my notes to talk about the second book, and as I'm reading the last book, in every single one of these books, Kristen has a priest or a monk, a good and godly man, besides her father, as a guide and a wise counselor who always seeks to reconcile her to God and his love. Whether she receives it or not is up to Kristen, but that's always offered to her. And I think it's so beautiful, and I love that unset weaves this into each of her stories. It's so needed, and it's such a beautiful picture of grace. So in each of these books, Kristen has this pivotal conversation with a priest or monk, as I mentioned before, about God's love and forgiveness. In this book, it is between Kristen and Gunolf. And the significance of this conversation, of course, as you can imagine, is coming off of this fear she has, this weight of her sin on her, and this very real terror that she will die in childbirth. And as Kristen is about to give birth for the first time, and she's in this new home, and none of her family are with her, and she's convinced that she's going to die, she has this beautiful and gracious conversation with her brother-in-law. Her labor is painful, and it is very dangerous, but she's able to have her brother-in-law, this priest, for consolation as this happens. Now, again, I want, <laughs> I feel like I'm painting this so bleakly, but I, I feel as though it is important to do so, that as this is happening, again, this is a birth, it, this is life coming into the world, so it is this beautiful moment, but at the same time that this is happening, 
Kristen's guilt and shame is now on full display to everyone. Her deception is now on full display. Everyone knows this child came too early, a fully formed child after the wedding. So she's in the midst of this. She's in the midst of giving life to this child. And at the same time, she's just steeped and mired, as I keep saying, in her guilt and in her sin. And that's when we have this moment of this priest offering her reconciliation and a reminder of God's love. So I'm going to read a little bit from that scene of Kristen giving birth and confiding in Gunolf. And what has happened is she has just confessed to her part in Aline's death. So she says to Gunolf, But I must be like a leper in God's eyes, said Kristen. She rested her face on the priest's arm which she was gripping, such as I am infected with sins. My sister, said the priest softly, placing his other hand on her wimple. I doubt that you are so sinful, young child, that you have forgotten that just as God can cleanse a person's flesh of leprosy, he can also cleanse your soul of sin. And of course, Kristen is in the throes of this torment, and so she rebuffs what Gunolf says and is saying, I don't know about this because of how great my sin is. And so he continues to say to her, Kristen, the priest said sternly, are you so arrogant that you think yourself capable of sinning so badly that God's mercy is not great enough? And he continues to console her and he ends with this, even to you, I promise God's forgiveness. At the very instant you ask for it, if only you will give up your pride and believe that his love is greater than your hatred. I just love that. It is such a beautiful picture and such a beautiful moment of consolation in her hour of need. Just the tenderness that Gunolf has for Kristen and how he reminds her of God's forgiveness of God's love and his mercy, that she can be reconciled with Christ, even with all of this that she has done. After this, Kristen's son is born. He's healthy. He's beautiful. She loves him from the moment he is born. It's just this beautiful, tender view of motherhood that Nunset is able to portray. It was a harrowing birth. Kristen almost died, but all of that is forgotten in that moment of this child being placed on her. And after a time, she goes on this pilgrimage. She's vowed to St. Olaf that she will go and place her crown at the altar. Some of the significance of this moment is that Kristen is no longer hiding her shame and her guilt. And she is going before God and seeking reconciliation and confessing what she has done and pleading for his mercy, which we know is offered to her. On her way, she sees Simone, which is a little awkward. They have a conversation and things are are sort of mended between them. And once she is at the church and the altar of St. Olaf, she has this picture of Christ dying for her and for her sins. And it is beautiful and just causes you to stop for a moment and just marvel at this moment of repentance, which is interesting with what comes next for the rest of the story, which I'm calling, as I mentioned earlier, the little foxes. And I'll explain that in a minute. 
But I want to, I really wanted to touch on this, how this is brought out in the story. I'm going to read a quote again from the biography of how Kristen has had this beautiful moment of repentance and redemption and forgiveness by God. But how does it affect her life? Where does she go from there? This is only at the very beginning of the book, and there's so much more after this. And it's so interesting how Kristen's life continues after this moment. So I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm going to explain what I mean by the little foxes a little bit more. And again, this is from the biography by A.H. Winsness. Kristen's remorse, self-examination, and penance are honorable and sincere. But in the life that follows, there is no jubilant feeling of salvation, no assurance of eternal bliss. There must be unceasing struggle and effort. For it is in the concrete life, in her actions, her relationship with husband, children, and stepchildren, with her father, and with Simone Dare, that she must show that her contrition is positive, encouraging her will to rise up and seek a new way forward. And this is where we get to the crux of the story and of Kristen's life. She has just had this beautiful moment that Kristen is her own worst enemy. I got the phrase, the little foxes, from the second chapter of the Song of Solomon. As I was reading and reflecting on the wife, the phrase, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, just kept running through my head. I thought it was from a proverb. I didn't realize that it was from the Song of Solomon, which is very interesting how it correlates to the this book. Now, I'm not a theologian, and I'm not saying this is the interpretation of this verse or this chapter, but I just think it's a very interesting correlation, and I'll explain. In the second chapter of the Song of Solomon, which I would suggest you read, it is this beautiful picture of, of love and of, of marriage, and it's where the verses come in of his banner over me is love. It's just, it's just this beautiful view of wedded bliss. But in verse 15, it says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. The way that I saw that verse correlate, and even that chapter, with the story of Kristen Lovren's daughter and Erland is how in the midst of their love and of these beautiful moments, illicit or otherwise, they have shared together when they are out of danger and just in ordinary life, bitterness seeps in and anger. And it's made me think the everyday relationships that we are in. How do we forgive those we live with and love? And what are our daily choices of either forgiveness or bitterness? Kristen, sadly, as I've mentioned, is her own worst enemy, and she chooses bitterness. After this beautiful moment of reconciliation, Kristen and Erlen have a chance to have a strong, loving relationship and marriage. But that's not what happens, unfortunately. In typical Kristen fashion, she seethes with bitterness and anger over the smallest things and holds it against Erlen from the moment she comes to Hussabi. When she first comes to the estate, she's jealous of Erlen's carefree manner that he doesn't seem overwrought with the guilt that she feels. She's angry because he does not notice that she is pregnant at 24 weeks, which is a whole different story. And there's a lot to say about Erlen and his culpability for things that go wrong in this relationship. 
The servant, Ulf, figures it out even before Erland. So, I mean, rightfully so, her husband, her new husband, doesn't even notice that she's pregnant. He doesn't feel the guilt that she does. So she's, that seeps in. That's one of the ways those little foxes come to spoil the vineyard. And one of the early instances of this way in which Kristen is holding on to this bitterness comes after Erland finally finds out that she's pregnant. And they've had an argument. They're going to bed. And it says, she felt as if she were sinking and sinking. He had not one word to offer her. Now that he knew she had been carrying his child these long, difficult days, Kristen clenched her teeth in the dark. She would not beg him. If he remained silent, then she would be silent too, even if it lasted until the day she gave birth. Resentment surged up inside her, but she lay absolutely still next to the wall. So that's a little bit of an indication of Kristen's obstinacy and stubbornness and how she can hold a grudge. She is unwilling to forgive, even though she has been forgiven much. And the two of them, when their relationship is tested, they are strong, they're united, they're burning with passion. But in times of peace, they retreat into their worst flaws. And for Kristen, that's stubbornness and obstinacy. And then towards the end of the book, we come to this moment of reckoning between Erlen and Kristen. And I can't tell what is happening in the book at this time, but I'm going to read a quote from Sigurd Unset's biography and a quote from Erlen that it sums up again how detrimental this character flaw that Kristen has and bitterness, just how it can destroy love. So I'm going to read those and then share something much more hopeful from another relationship in the book. Winsnes says, with every child she bears, she has seven sons. Her power increases to take a wider view and to thank God for what he has given her. But her relations with Erlen are the touchstone. It is not easy to bring her obstinacy to heal. Here it is hardest for her not to put herself in the foreground. Here she remains closely imprisoned in her own ego. Is it not he who fundamentally is responsible for the misery in which she lives? She continually reminds him of his guilt in violent outbursts and small stinging references. She is forever digging up the past. Now I'll read Erlen's quote towards the end of The Wife. You say I've forgotten. That may not always be the worst of sins. I've never pretended to be a pious man, but I remember what I learned from Sarah John when I was a child, and God's servants have reminded me of it since. It's a sin to brood over and dwell on the sins we have confessed to the priest and repented before God, receiving his forgiveness through the hand and the words of the priest. And it's not out of piety, Kristen, that you're constantly tearing open these old sins of ours. You want to hold the knife to my throat every time I oppose you in some way. Kristen cannot let go of the wrongs done to her. And I believe this is why she has such a hard time receiving the forgiveness of God. She has that moment earlier in the book. It's beautiful. Her story is not over. This is where we're at now. I believe that is why her full relationship with God is stilted, because of her allowing those roots of bitterness to creep in over time and not dealing with them, not being able to forgive when someone wrongs her. 
On the flip side of where we are at with Kristen and Erlen's relationship, Lovrens and Ronfred had the same opportunity to descend into this type of relationship, this being at odds with one another and holding bitterness against each other in the last book when Ronfred has made that confession. But their relationship is beautifully redeemed. Their marriage becomes sweeter and closer as they age after Ronfred's confession. And in that relationship, it is from complete forgiveness with each other. So that's something to hold on to as you read this story and get mired into the tumultuous relationship of Erlen and Kristen. And lest I paint Kristen too harshly, I want to say this final thought. How Kristen acts is a mirror for our own pet grudges and stubbornness. And I don't want to judge her too harshly because I think that the strength of Sigrid Unset's writing is placing this mirror to us and of her amazing ability to write and to capture human nature. But there is so much more to come for this book. I can't share all of it for now, but in the latter half of the book, all of the life that Kristen has built for herself, for Erlen, and for their many sons is threatened. But you will have to wait until you read it to see the betrayal and the tumult which comes at the end. There's a lot that happens, things that will make you angry, but things that will make you very hopeful for the story of Kristen and Erlen. And I'll recap all of that and what happens next time, because I want you to have time to read it yourself. And this is where I leave you. Next time, I will be talking about the last book in the series, The Cross. Oh, it's rich. It's very good. There's much to look forward to as you continue this series. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you so much for sticking with me through all of this time. If you've enjoyed today's episode and the podcast in general, would you mind leaving a rating or review? It's a small way that you can help others find the podcast. And if you'd like to connect in the meantime, I'm at WellReadBeth on Instagram and the A Well-Read Life Facebook group. Thanks so much. Happy reading. Until next time.